Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Jens Nelson. And I'm Lucas Stock. This is a podcast that is dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. We thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of the Lord's Church. So Lucas, today we have another special episode. Um, I mean, every episode should be special in the hearts of those who listen, but this is especially, <laughs> of course, of course. especially um, a really cool and exciting episode. And so why don't you... Uh, kind of tell us what we're doing today. Yeah, so we are extremely grateful to be able to have a collaboration episode, a couple actually of episodes where we are recording with Dr. Jared Henderson of the um, Matins podcast and also Augustinian um, and Feast and Fast and all around cool Twitter personality that you should follow. Um, so I'm going to ask you, Jared, if you could just kind of give a little background on yourself and sort of what you do over at Matins, and then we can kind of get into how we're going to go about it today here on Doxology. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just really excited to be here guys, but yeah, so I'm Jared Henderson. Um, as you said, like, uh, technically I'm Dr. Jared Henderson. So, uh, a couple of years ago, I earned a PhD in philosophy where I was mostly interested in like working in, like logic, philosophy of language and metaphysics but also was interested in like analytic theology. And uh, it was actually during my graduate studies when I sort of started going to church and taking my faith seriously again, and also got really into like Christian history, um, Christian theology, and trying to figure out like I had these philosophical interests and trying to figure out how like they interacted with Christian belief. Um, in the last couple of years, I have uh, mostly turned to like popular writing and podcasting stuff. So you mentioned Matins, which is kind of like the main, the main project. It's a weekly reflection on a text from Christian history is the tagline. Every week I pick something from a different Christian tradition or a different part of Christian history, read a little bit about it, and then just like offer up a reflection. But I also, so I made Augustinian. There's only one episode of that left once I finally finish it, which was just a chapter by chapter podcast about Augustine's confessions. The point of that just being, uh, to introduce people to the confessions and to Augustine and like kind of help them with some of the, the dense uh, theological and often philosophical topics. And then the recent project that you mentioned is called Fast and Feast, which is um, a liturgical year podcast. So it doesn't come out like every Tuesday or something. Instead, it comes out on the beginning of seasons or every major feast that's on the Anglican calendar. So there'll be about 47 episodes by the end. Um, you know, so we just had one for Advent. We uh, then had one uh, shortly after for St. Andrew the Apostle. Next up will be St. Thomas in December. Sweet. We are really excited uh, to have you on the Doxology podcast for um, what's probably going to be a really exciting conversation. We, we just uh, recorded something else and it was a lot of fun and, and definitely um, just an all around good time. So I'm looking forward to, to this. So for those of our listeners who are not familiar with um, Jared and especially Matins, um, the way that a typical, and correct me if I'm wrong, the way that a typical Matins episode goes is um, like you mentioned, reading from whatever selection for that episode and then um, reflecting back on what has been read. So we're going to sort of adapt that to do our own little spin on it where we have all ahead of time read John chapter 11, which is a little long. So instead of reading the whole thing, we're going to kind of just 
talk through it. Um, and we're going to offer up our own reflections uh, to each other and to you, dear listeners, and kind of just work our way through the text of John 11 and explore what it is that it has to, to teach us. So um, we are, I believe, all kind of referencing the NASB version. Um, there was a little bit of talk of how we would do that. Um, we're going to, like I said, not read the whole thing. Um, so Jens, could you maybe just like summarize John 11? Um, yeah, for, for sure. For those who either haven't read it for a little bit or, you know, just want a little refresher course. Yeah. So Jesus and his disciples are, are sort of, um, I don't know, I guess more or less approached and like, you know, he, he learns that a, a friend of his is, is dead or is at least dying. Um, and as, as Jesus sort of delays his journeying to Lazarus, um, Lazarus perishes. And, and as he arrives there, um, everyone's really distraught and, and sad and upset, understandably so. Um, and, and Jesus is overcome with a, a number of emotions. This is, I guess, the, the if, if you ever went to like Awana or like any sort of like, I'm trying to think of where I remember doing it because I didn't do Awana, but like there's always like a trivia of like, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? And the answer is Jesus wept, uh, which is where this, where this is from, uh, that Jesus weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. And then um, maybe you know, or maybe you don't, but Jesus actually um, more or less resuscitates or resurrects Lazarus. And, um, and then some people are really upset about it. So I don't know, that was like a really quick flyover, but that's I guess, maybe highlighting the main points. Is there anything I missed? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, we see some figures that we get to interact with in other parts of the gospels as well. Lazarus is the brother of Martha and Mary, um, who feature in a, in a couple other important uh, gospel stories. But I think that, that kind of sums up the, the, the general bullet points of, of sort of what's happening here. Um, so yeah, I think, um, why don't we allow Jared to kind of kick off our, our reflection conversation on, on what's going on in this text and what, what, what kind of stands out as, as significant. Yeah, cool. So I think that there are at least two main points that really stuck, stood out to me here. And I think maybe my reading of this is a little bit colored by the fact that we Anglicans are celebrating Advent right now or we're observing Advent because, you know, Advent is a time where we're often wondering when Jesus is going to come. There's this sense of longing and waiting. And one of the things that always stands out to you when you read John 11 is that um, Jesus takes his time. So he, he, he tarries, right? So he's, he's waiting. And um, even though clearly he's upset, like they, you know, he weeps uh, when he's, sees that his friend has died you know this friend that jesus loves um and it's a it's a very explicit uh statement of his love for lazarus and it's always something i wrestle with when i when i try to figure this out um there are hints though in the text about like why jesus would wait and one of the one of the things that's mentioned is that um by doing so we actually bring glory to god like that this, this whole event is going to be something that glorifies god and we can talk more about what that is but the second point that I think really stands out, you know, is um, is about Thomas, and I think uh, Thomas is a is an apostle who often, uh, at least when I was a kid, we always referred to him as doubting Thomas 
because doubt was yeah. the worst thing you could have. Uh, <laughs> and, and it kind of colored your reading of him the whole time. But in, in John 11, as Jesus is being like preparing to go, uh, Thomas is the one who says, let us also go so that we may die with him. <laughs> right? and, and it's that this fact that Thomas is just in it, man. He, right. he might've doubted <laughs> at some point there, 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 we all know the story um uh you know with the waves and we all know the fact that he that thomas uh after the resurrection thomas is the one who actually wants to touch the wounds but uh and so we always think about this as thomas the one who needs help with his unbelief but uh here it seemed that Tom, thomas he was ready to die mm. he was ready to die for jesus or die with jesus and real quick uh, that's interesting sure we could talk at length yeah. about either of those so I'm curious. So I, with, with that, um, understanding, I, so I took a gospel of John class at, at Moody when I was in Bible college. And so like, I remember a lot of conversations around this chapter and if, if memory serves me well, my teacher was talking about this, not as Thomas, um, being bold in saying like, let's go with him to die, but almost like, like in a fearful sense, like Thomas isn't wanting to go, um, he's almost being sarcastic, like, all right, well, I guess we're going to go to and die with him. Um, so I, I'm curious if, if, if there's even like, what warrant there would be to, to interpret it that way, as opposed to the way that you've interpreted it. Um, because up until then, I had read it in the same way that you had that, like, this was evidence of, of him being bold in his faith and, and wanting to go and die with, with Christ. But um, again, if memory serves me well in that class, I, Dr. Peterman huh. was saying essentially that, that he, he was actually being a little bit like tongue in cheek and was more unwilling to go, but went reluctantly, I guess. I don't hmm. know if, you, if you've ever heard that. I had never, I had never heard that before. And I guess, you know, I can kind of see it because there's first this like misunderstanding where they think that Lazarus is asleep because Jesus says that Lazarus mm -hmm. has fallen asleep. Then he clarifies like Lazarus is dead. Um, and then he says like, I'm glad for your sakes that, it, that you weren't there and you may believe. And then uh, then Thomas says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And, you know, I can kind of see it. There's a bit of like dramatic irony or something kind of in the background, which might suggest that there is more to this than simply uh, like a literal a literal reading. I don't know how convinced I am by that reading. Um, you know, I imagine other people know the Gospel of John significantly better than I do. But uh, you know, when at first when I read this, um, I was um, I was pretty convinced it was Thomas being kind of committed in part because the disciples seem to be fearful. Like they seem to know that if that if Jesus goes back to this place, um, he may be stoned. Yeah, and. You know how how warranted is sarcasm when you actually think uh, you're, there's a real chance that you'll die? Yeah, uh, that's a good point. I don't I don't know. Yeah, I I really like the the tie to Advent, whether it's you know something we would notice in another time of the year or not. I think that there is a lot there to 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 reflect on just what you know whether it's through the mindset of Advent preparing for the birth of Christ or whether it's elsewhere, this idea of, um, you know, Jesus taking his time to get to where he's going or what he's going to do. Um, and, and for me, sort of one of the things that stuck out to me is 
when he finds out that Lazarus is sick, he says, this is in verse four, um, Jesus says, this sickness is not meant for death, but it's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. Um, and one of the things that in, that's interesting is one, like you mentioned, it, it's sort of, he, he's already very clearly pointing us to the point of what's going to unfold is for God's glory. Um, but it's funny, he says the sickness is not meant for death, but for the glory of God, but Lazarus does die. So mm -hmm. it, it, it's like, usually if, if somebody said this, you know, if, if Jesus said this isn't meant for death, I would, my first instinct would be, oh, he's going to be sick, but then he's going to heal him for God's glory kind of a thing. But um, it, it, it's, it's interesting that the sickness is not meant for death. But death is involved temporarily, at least yeah. for, for Lazarus. And I think that in itself kind of points us also to um, this, you know, Advent kind of, of mindset where um, mm -hmm. ultimately death doesn't get the final word. Um, uh, I guess it's maybe more of an Easter mindset, but. <laughs> oh, no, I think it is an Advent mindset, if you, if you will, for a second, because this is actually a real difference between the Eastern liturgical tradition and the Western liturgical tradition. That the Eastern liturgical tradition reads the nativity during uh, what we what we call Advent. They don't like in Eastern churches. They don't actually read, or they don't even call it Advent. the The fast is mm -hmm. called the Nativity fast. It is leading up, and it's and it's about Jesus's birth. The Western Church has a much stronger emphasis on the second coming uh, in Advent. And I think it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting juxtaposition actually, because it emphasizes that we live in a world that's fundamentally changed by the presence of God, that the incarnation has occurred. Mm. Um, but we also live in a world where God can feel hidden and where we're, we're still waiting. Um, mm. So, so Jesus came, but Jesus <laughs> left, you know, Christ is, is ascended uh, and, and now we're waiting. And, and so I think at least now we can, obviously there are parallels because we can think about we read Isaiah often in the Western church, uh, which is uh, this longing for the Messiah. And, and we see the fulfillment of parts of Isaiah in Jesus, but we also see this, this further promised fulfillment, this, this final consummation of, of it all. But it brings up this kind of theological issue that you, that lots of people have. And like, I struggle with it sometimes, which is just like, why does God wait? Mm -hmm. Especially when there's like so much pain. So this is this is also a passage that seems to hint at the sort of the what in philosophical terms we used to just call the problem of pain, right. figuring out um, why doesn't God just fix things now? Yeah, and that actually like ties I, in I think really that, well. I don't, to it. I you know. So, oh sorry. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Um, that no, okay. Sorry. Yeah. That, so that no, you're good. Um, that ties in well actually to what I was thinking. And in, in verse three. Um, basically uh where, where she says that lord the one that you love is sick uh that that that's something that in, in considering this this advent theme or just considering exactly what the text is saying um i think sometimes especially maybe in more um like prosperity type situations uh there can be this question of like why do you and i i i, I you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Like a lot of people will say that. Um, but, but for Christians, especially there can be this mindset of like, well, I'm a Christian. Like I thought being a Christian means like blessedness and, um, like health, wealth and, and prosperity. Um, and so obviously I'm not a pros I'm not somebody who would hold to the, like the actual prosperity gospel, but I know that there are people who, um, even if they're not in that, in that world, they might still think they might function as, as prosperity believers. 
Um, but this text would would seem to indicate that like even those that Jesus that Jesus deeply loves and cherishes, even those whom he um, has a deep and significant relationship with, like bad things are going to befall them, even even death. Um, so I think that there's a, a sense in which as we wait now as as believers in the 21st century, as we wait for that second advent, um, there can be that same thing as as Jesus tarries, we're gonna endure. <laughs> coronavirus uh we're going to endure um cancer and all sorts of sickness and bereavements and financial distress and one thing after another and it's not to say that the lord doesn't care it's that it's not that he's absent um but again maybe even highlighting what you said in verse four that this isn't meant like this this isn't the end like your suffering whatever is befalling you it is not the end like that's not what the goal is that's not um the purpose of it. It's not just that you're going to die for the sake of dying, um, but all of this is for the glory of God. So there's, there's hope amidst even I, the I, most I like, would just difficult add situations. That... Oh, sorry about that. But no, you're good. I, I, so I would just add that I think um, like I wouldn't hold anything like the prosperity gospel, but I'm going to tell you the truth. The first time something bad happens to me or like the moment something bad happens to me, I realized that how, how similar my beliefs are actually right. uh, to, mm. a, to, a, to a, a, a viewpoint that I would typically reject mm. because the first thing I wonder is like, why me? The first thing mm. I wonder is how could God have let this happen to me? It's an easy mindset for us to all to, all to fall into um, that most of us just expect good things are going to happen to us because, well, God loves us. Like this is, this is the, this is the basic idea. And I think there's some truth to it, but it's, it's, it's understanding, um, precisely what will happen to you and also the fact that this does not preclude sort of momentary often very serious suffering lazarus shows us that it's suffering to the point mm. of death yeah and something that that really stuck out to me and i'll probably jump around to a few different um examples of it but this is such a human story and what i mean by that is i think that in several ways the human experience or, or, you know, what it's like for us as humans to uh, be living in the world and even to, to live in the world with a relationship with Jesus is, I think, really comes out. And um, also, in a more, you know, big picture theological sense, the humanity of Christ really comes out too, um, which I don't think is a separate thing. I think it's all one theme that, that I really see where we see all these different things um, jump out at us. We see the, the love that Jesus has for Martha, for Mary, for Lazarus. Um, we see whether it's, you know, bitter sarcasm or committed excitement. We see Thomas's, you know, commit, you know, let's go kind of uh, response. Uh, we see the, the grief in Martha and Mary. And what's really interesting is in verse 21, Martha says it. And then in verse 32 mary says it they both say word for word lord if you had been here my brother would not have died and you know i haven't had any siblings pass away but i i, I feel like you can hear the loss and the grief in that sentence especially when it's repeated they both say it to jesus at different times you, you know just whether that maybe they're mad at him, maybe they're just sad, whatever, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's so simple. And it just really, to me, just communicates that 
pain. Um, and we see Jesus weeping. We see him. He was, he was moved, you know, after Mary says to him that Lazarus would not have died if Jesus was there in verse 33, it says, therefore, when Jesus saw her, Mary weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And that's what, you know, seems to motivate him to go to the grave. He said, where have you laid him? They said, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Um, and it's just remarkable, both from the theological perspective of who is Jesus, who is this man who is God, but he's so clearly a man here, even though he's going to go on to raise someone from the dead. And even though he knew ahead of time that this wasn't meant for death, let's wait. This is to glorify God and the son of man. You know, he's, he is a man. He is a person who loves Lazarus and his sisters, you know? Um, and then one more thing I'll say, uh, you know, there's it, the famous, um, maybe it's not famous, but he, when Martha is talking to Jesus, Jesus says, your brother will rise from the dead. Martha said, yeah, I know in the resurrection on the last day. And then Jesus said, no, no, I am the resurrection. Um, the one who believes in me will live, et cetera, et cetera. And then she expresses in verse 27, I would say like some kind of faithful response. Yes, Lord, I've come to believe that you are the Christ, the son of God and he who comes into the world. Like that's a pretty remarkable, not many people in the gospels get it <laughs> um, that Jesus is the Christ. Um, but then just a few verses down, um, Jesus says, remove the stone. And Martha says, no, he's been dead. There's, he's going to smell bad. And it's just, it's such a, uh, like human response of not only just struggling to believe even that which we confess, but also it just, her concern is so it, it, it feels mundane. It's like, Oh, it's going to smell bad. Cause it's a, it's a grave. Of course it's, you know, we don't want that, but Jesus is thinking in this very different key. And, and it reminds me even of in John four, when Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman at the well, who, by the way, at least in the gospel of John is the first person to confess Jesus as the Messiah um, the Christ, which we see Martha doing here. Interesting parallel of women proclaiming who Jesus is before the apostles get it different conversation, I guess. But, um, the, the Samaritan woman acknowledges who he, or, or he t tells her who he is. She, she acknowledges it. And then he asks her about living water and and she says oh I, i'd like some living water i don't want to have to draw water at the well and I, instantly this faith person who has expressed this faith in who he is you know instantly has this very mundane concern over getting physical water martha has this mundane concern over the smell of a dead body and it's this human sort of i don't know human all too human is what i think when i read this of just like yes you're the christ no, the body's going to smell bad. And she doesn't get what he just told her. Um, and it's just, I think such what, you know, whether we're talking about Martha or Mary or the disciples or Jesus, we see all of these very, very, um, I think, relatable um, expressions of, of human emotion and experience that I think probably everyone has some kind of experience that would, would correspond to someone in this story, I think. In, in some way, like we've all felt that pain, whether we've experienced that loss firsthand or just lesser forms of loss that maybe aren't 
as permanent, but we've all felt the loss of, of a relationship in some way, I think. And um, I feel like that's just what really stuck out to me was just how easy it is to find ourselves in this story because of the very human character of all of the people do you think, involved. Do you think it's significant that the one perspective that we don't see a lot of actually is Lazarus? So Lazarus never says anything, mm. right? Lazarus doesn't say thank you, <laughs> right? And you imagine there was obviously some, there's obviously something that we, we don't get the full story, but Lazarus, Lazarus never mm. speaks. Um, and yet, and, and I wonder if sometimes, um, like I go back and forth on what could possibly explain, uh, explain this. Sometimes I think it's just that um, Lazarus in some sense is a type for what we are going to experience later on in the general resurrection. So, and, and, and we don't know what that's going to be like quite yet. So um, we have, he sort of is a shadow of it for us in the, in the, in the stories of the gospel. Um, other, uh, other cases though, I, I just really don't know what to say. Uh, about the um, fact that he had to die twice. You know, it's, I mean, like yeah, yeah, Lazarus right. died twice. <laughs> like what, what, I wonder yeah. what that was like. <laughs> I, I like the image of him when he comes out of the tomb, we're told, uh, you know, like we would expect um, that he's, he's bound in the, you know, like we'll see Jesus being bound in the burial um, clothing and the way that they would bury people, but he's bound hand and foot and his mm -hmm. face was wrapped up with a cloth. And I'm just like, like, I, I like if he's bound hand and foot, I can't imagine it's easy for him to walk. I can't imagine, you know, as he's like stumbling and tripping out of the, the, the tomb, like he probably can't see very well because of the cloth on his face. And like, who knows what he's aware of when he's in the grave for four days or whatever Martha says, like just how disorienting it must've been for, I'm sure he had a lot of thoughts <laughs> that yeah, he yeah. probably shared, you know, after we leave the scene, but it is a very interesting, just what is his silence telling us almost um, is, is, is because I've never thought of that. Cause so often in the gospels, there's actually a familiar kind of cadence to it, right? An unbeliever or someone who is not convinced, but is willing to come to Jesus or, you know, doesn't quite understand, but has heard good things goes experiences a miracle. And then often wants to confess him as if not as Lord, then as, as at least like a miracle worker, right? Like at least, at least there's something there that they hear about signs and wonders. Lazarus sees basically the most dramatic of, <laughs> of signs and wonders. Um, and then, and then we hear nothing from him. You know, I just, it just, it just makes me hunger to hear what Lazarus was, was thinking. Mm. Yeah. And it's funny. I just, even as you were, this is not fleshed out because it literally just occurred to me, but um, it, so we, we, Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah Jonah is in the whale for three days. Um, and, and we, we know probably that that's pointing forward to Jesus mm -hmm. who was in the, you know, who was in the grave for three days um, and, and yet came back, God delivered him, etc. cetera. Um, but even Lazarus kind of fulfills that sign in a way too, because Martha says he was dead for four days. Mm -hmm. I could imagine depending on how you count days, if he died, Maybe he wasn't buried until the next day because he needed to be prepared or, you know, and so maybe he's been in the grave for about three days too. And we see this, this, like, you, like a type of us mm -hmm. 
and maybe also, and, and I think also definitely a type of Christ uh, who, who would undergo the same experience of burial that Lazarus went, he didn't die in the same way, but, um, and just the connections between this is this, this is kind of like the sign of Jonah that Jesus points the Pharisees to, I think he's talking to the Pharisees, um, almost like recalled into the present for the crowds who are watching. And, and we are told that um, many who saw what he had done believed. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that is, is a really, I mean, yeah, dramatic is definitely the word for it. Just to, to be there either as Lazarus or one of his sisters or the disciples, but even just an onlooker who came to comfort, you know, someone who lived in your town who who you might have known as a kid whose brother just died and then you come face to face with with god in the flesh like yeah um wow. yeah i don't well, know i'm curious i'm curious so like when when i've read this before um you know we get to the part in verse 33 where jesus is deeply moved in his spirit and troubled um some translations say angered um obviously in 35 jesus weeps so I'm curious, um, and this is something that I remember, again, in the Gospel of John class, we talked a lot about what is it here that is deeply moving Jesus in his spirit? What is it that is deeply troubling him or angering him, depending on the translation? And why did Jesus weep? Um, because Jesus, it's not as though, so it's, it's almost like, on the one hand, Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus purposely tarried. He purposely delayed and going to the tomb because um, sure, or, you know, maybe if he had gotten on his horse right away, he could have, you know, arrived at the town and, and Lazarus would have been alive still, but, you know, maybe nearing death and Jesus could have just healed him. Um, but the whole time Jesus knows what he's doing. He purposely delays. And so when he gets there, um, just like Lucas said, it, it's the humanness of, of Jesus, whether, whether he's sad um, because his friend has perished, whether he's um, sad because of the unbelief and the doubt of the people there, um, the reality still stands that these are very real, actual human emotions. Um, but I'm curious what you guys think about like what those emotions are. Is he simply like, is he deeply moved in spirit and troubled because Lazarus is dead? Like has the death of his friend so overcome him that he's moved to such grief, even though he knew what he was doing all along? Um, or um, as I've heard before, um, was he deeply moved in spirit and troubled and wept over the unbelief of the people. Um, you know, he has to, I mean, all throughout John's gospel, especially he has to keep dealing with all of the doubt of the people, um, the people who just aren't getting it as, you know, time and time again. Um, so what are, what have, what have been your ways of reading this? What are your thoughts on what here is moving Jesus and what causes him to weep? I don't, I, I would. So I don't think it's the unbelief because he hasn't told anybody else what he's doing. He's told the disciples it's for the glory of God. At this point, he's told Martha that he is the resurrection that his brother will, her brother will live. He hasn't told Mary that yet. And obviously he hasn't told the crowd of Jews who are weeping that yet. But also the reason I think it's about Lazarus is it's not just about Lazarus, it's about his friends. Um, in verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came also with her weeping, he was deeply moved and was troubled. And then he goes to the tomb and he weeps. 
So he's seeing, I think it's the, it's the sadness and the grief of loss and death. And also to blow this up a little more theologically, even though he knew what he was doing, he's, he's the, the God who created man in his image and, and he didn't make them to die. You know, he didn't make them to experience this loss and he walked with them in the cool of the garden and that's been shattered because of sin. And so I think, I, I don't think you need to like re, you know, it's possible for Jesus to know what's going on and actually be sad about what's happening, I think. And I don't think we need to pick one, which I'm not saying you were doing. I'm just saying like, we don't need to like, like he is the God man. He's, he, he's God and he's man. And, and those are both true. And I think that we kind of see that here where he does know what's going on, but he's also sad. Yeah, I don't know exactly what to say, but I would say there's probably a parallel here with some of the reactions in like the Garden of Gethsemane. So right before the, the crucifixion where we see um, fervent prayer, we see tears. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I think it's at least at the very least, we are really reminded in some of these depictions of Jesus in the gospel of Jesus as fully human, which, you know, there's, there's a kind of theological tendency amongst like some, uh, some Christians to kind of de-emphasize the divinity of Christ to talk about how he's just this really good guy. And, but, um, and, you know, not a view I'm particularly sympathetic with, but there's also, I think amongst a kind of group, and I think I'm one of them who really wants to emphasize the divinity of Christ Oftentimes you can do that by selling short the humanity and, and, and the sort of scandal of the incarnation is this full divinity and this full humanity and a story like um, Jesus weeping at either the, un, either the unbelief or the, uh, the death of Lazarus right before this, this uh, resurrection uh, just, just, just confronts you immediately. And it's like, you, you have no choice but to, to confess Jesus as both fully human and fully divine, at least in this case, by emphasizing the humanity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have nothing. <laughs> I'm trying to think of anything else I have to add, but I think that that what we've what we've said, I think, really covers what 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 stood out to me. I don't know if you guys have anything else that that uh, you know you want to share. So I, I do want to mention one last bit because it's easy when you read John 11, I think, to start ignoring everything at about verse 47 which is where the narrative turns and it goes to the, the sort of chiefs and rabbis who are then uh, the, the Pharisees who are, who are going to react to Jesus because this kind of feels like a narrative bridge that's then going to get us to the plot basically of the, the crucifixion. Uh, uh, you know, this is, this is how it kind of, um, we have to see the rumblings, right? You have to, any good narrative eventually cuts to the enemy or cuts to the bad guy and you mentioned some stuff. But I think that, and like, sometimes we have to remember that like we're Caiaphas here, like <laughs> like like mm. if we're if we're ever finding ourselves in the story, and you know there's always a danger of identifying too much with one, one one character in the story. But I think part of the riches of the gospel is that often you can find yourself in many different parts of it, and it's one part of the lesson, one part of the way that God speaks to you there. Oftentimes, when we are presented with uncomfortable truths from God. And a man coming in, you know, uh, you know, there, this, this resurrection. These are uncomfortable truths if you're, uh, if you haven't been able to fully confess Jesus as Lord, and uh, it sets off these terrible events. Uh, and, you know, uh, 
just thinking it's something I've been trying to think more about just um, when I think God is trying to speak to me, when I think God is trying to tell me something, you know, am I confessing, uh, am I, a, am I a Martha right now? Um, who is this, this, this really great sign of faith or am I, um, am I a Caiaphas or am I, you know, somewhere in between am I a Thomas? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was thinking sort of along those lines, what was it like to be Lazarus, to be the one that was brought back from the dead? All of the myriad of questions I'm sure that he would have faced from his friends and the people that live with him. Um, But if you read a little bit further, I didn't read all of chapter 12, um, but there is this decision to kill Lazarus as almost to like, you know, all these, all these Jews, all these, um, you know, the people that would have been under the high priests and the the scribes and the leaders, um, they're deserting that to, to follow Jesus. And so there's like this, this movement to get Lazarus killed. Um, so what was it like to, to know that, you know, you didn't necessarily ask to be raised from the dead, but you, you've, you, this miraculous thing has happened and suddenly you're this, like, you've got this big target on your back. Um, and so to, you know, to think about that, even as, as Christians living in this world, um, in America, we have the, the wonderful blessing and privilege to not face much religious persecution. Um, but our, our brothers and sisters around the world, um, for, for professing Christ for, um, even though we haven't tasted the resurrection yet, we've been given new life. We have, we have this new identity, this new, um, role to play in the world. And so to, to have that crosshair on your back, so to speak, um, I think even that, when we think about you know, even if the text doesn't say it, we can a little bit at least imagine what, what it was like to be Lazarus, to, to have gone through this and to, um, to now be a target. But uh, I think it would help us to empathize a little bit more with, with our brothers and sisters around the world who, who do in fact face real persecution for their faith, for their, their confession that they have made. Um, So that was just kind of one of the last thoughts that I had as, as this chapter is rounded out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, in verse in chapter twelve, we see this the scene, you know, the famous anointing scene. But Lazarus is actually reclining with Jesus, and I just think of this sort of even as in the face of persecution, which is not something I can relate to, really. You know, I this isn't my experience of being a Christian. Um, but the, the the comfort that Jesus can offer uh, and the tremendous faith it takes to kind of have that posture with the Lord. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's funny. I totally forgot that anybody wanted to kill Lazarus. <laughs> um, and as I'm hearing those thoughts, I'm thinking like to back to what we said earlier, like Lazarus being a type of us in, in the resurrection we experience, like we've been buried and raised by Jesus in baptism is what Paul says. And so we, you know, for believers in Egypt or China or wherever else, um, to basically they're doing what Lazarus is doing. They're saying I was dead and Jesus raised me to life. And that's what gives them the target, you know, because, you know, if we were to distill down, you know, what we're doing as Christians, we're proclaiming um, that through Christ's resurrection, we have been raised and Christ has done that for us. And um, that's kind of what puts the target on the, on the church's back is its confession of, its experience of dying and being raised to new life with Christ. And I think that's a really powerful, like you said, way to rethink our own place in, in those parts of the world where we are blessed without having to be afraid of being Christians. 
um, to, to, to better think through and empathize with our brothers and sisters who, who don't share that blessing at, at this stage in, in history. And um, man, I don't know. I, this conversation has really made me like, just like Lazarus a lot more as a, <laughs> as a, um, an example and a, and a, and a, a lesson in so many different ways um, that I've just never thought of before. It, re- it really makes you wonder actually why we just never see, you know, in the Anglican tradition, we often name our churches just after saints. Right. Um, and uh, like, um, I have never seen a St. Lazarus right. church, maybe because Lazarus with the possessive is hard to pronounce or something, but man, he like totally deserves yeah. it. Cause like, uh, he, he's like the, he's one of the first, uh, to experience like the resurrection of Jesus directly. Um, and you know, this promise being given to us, um, Lazarus, well, you know, is I guess, again, I just wish we got to hear more from him. This is, this is more just like conjecture yeah. and theologizing now, but um, Lucas and I, a couple of months ago, we, we had a, an episode on the, the Marian dogmas, uh, within the Catholic mm-hmm. tradition. And one of those is the bodily assumption of Mary. Um, mm-hmm. so just off the top of my head, as I think of that, um, you know, I, a little bit ago, I alluded to the fact that Lazarus died twice. So he, he died somewhere in this passage and then theoretically would have died again, um, of natural causes. But I wonder if there's ever been a tradition that has assumed that Lazarus would have been bodily assumed that if like, if, if this was like a precursor to the resurrection, so he wouldn't have been able to die again, mm-hmm. or if this was just some sort of um, miraculous resuscitation that was distinct from what we as believers will experience in the resurrection. Yeah, yeah. Curious about that, but I don't know if there's answers. Yeah. I don't know anything, but that's, that, that is, that is actually a really interesting question. Yeah. L- listeners, it's your duty do, to figure it out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I do want to, now I want to plant a church called, you know, Saint Church Lazarus. of Saint Lazarus, the twice yeah. dead, or something. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. All right, well, yeah. I mean, I think that about wraps up this really magnificent chapter in the Gospel of John. So I think uh, on that note, we'll kind of transition to wrapping up. Um, Jared, thanks again so much. Wait, for... wait, wait. Are we? Is, so is it the thing I always forget? <laughs> it's the thing you always forget if we want to do it. So if, if you didn't, if you didn't know this, Jared, and if our listeners haven't caught on yet, we always forget this almost. Um, but we, we like to do this thing sort of to, you know, sometimes we have these really heavy and weighty t- topics that we go through. Um, so sometimes it can be nice to decompress before just mm-hmm. like transitioning out. And so we, we like to do a little bit of a segment called, uh, what are you reading? And okay. so we just talk about, you know, maybe it's a book, maybe it was an article, maybe it's, um, a magazine, something that you read, but like, what, what is it that you're reading right now that has captivated your mind or something that you think about? Um, so we'll ask you that question. What are you reading? Oh, so, so right now I am reading, oh man, I wish I could remember the author. Um, I'm reading this new, um, Herman Bovink biography that was published in 2020. The James um, Ellington? Is that yes, yes, yes. That's it. Uh, I'm reading this. I'm not very far in yet. Um, but I, I've really enjoyed it, especially because uh, the author goes at the very beginning and talks about this kind of problem of being a biographer for for Bavink, who is often characterized as having sort of the there's two Bavinks, there's the Orthodox Bavink and the modern Bavink, uh, and, and previous biographers have always kind of held them in opposition. And one of the theses of this biography is actually there is no distinction between between Bavink. And it raises a lot of interesting questions about um, sort of being a confessional or orthodox Christian 
in uh, in whatever age you're in, right? The, the, and figuring out uh, what we can do. Uh, Boving's a theological hero of mine. So then learning more about his life, learning more about Dutch politics in the late 19th and early 20th century and stuff. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. That's awesome. Um, I picked up a book by an Orthodox uh, theologian named Sergius Bulgakov, um, who I've been meaning to read for a while now, but I've just never picked anything up. But I figured this this uh, break between semesters was as good a chance as I'm going to get for a while. Um, so I'm reading The Burning Bush, which is uh, subtitled, in this translation is On the Orthodox Veneration of the Mother of God. And it's um, he originally wrote it. So, so Bulgakov was a, a Russian Orthodox uh, priest, theologian. He also was involved in politics. Um, really intriguing life. Um, in the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, he, he lived during, you know, lived through the Bolshevik revolution and, and was sort of exiled in France. Um, and he, he's a little controversial, controversial for his, uh, theology of something called sophiology, um, as in Sophia, uh, meaning wisdom. Um, and I, I don't know enough about what that is, especially in his in the way he formulates it to, to be able to speak to why that's controversial. But um, his articulation of divine wisdom has come to be controversial. But this is a really fascinating book where he originally set out to refute the Immaculate Conception because um, the Orthodox don't affirm the Immaculate Conception. So that was his goal was to kind of refute the Catholics on that. And then he kind of expanded it into a broader exploration of, of Mary. And um, I'm reading in chapter two right now, he's talking about her sinlessness and the beginning of the chapter is just this fascinating, like it's blowing my mind way of looking at original sin. Um, he's talking about Adam before sin didn't have any individuality that was distinct from other people because humanity is meant to be this one essence that is hypostasized in individual hypostases, which to me just sounds like how we talk about the Trinity and just like all this like really heady stuff that I'm not sure if I'm quite getting, but it's a fascinating read. So um, that's, that's what I've been reading, The Burning Bush. Very nice. Um, well, recently, The Banner of Truth released two new box sets. Um, one of them is basically like an essential works of John Owen. Um, and the other one is, I guess, maybe an essentials from the Puritan paperback classic series that they have. So, I mean, you can, if you look at the Puritan paperbacks, there's like 50 of them or something, but this has been condensed down to 10. Um, so I, with, with some um, birthday and soon to be Christmas money, <laughs> sort of took out a, a, an advance on it, but um, I got both <laughs> sets um, because I just couldn't pass them up. They're both just too good. Um, so I'm actually making my way through the first Puritan paperback classic, um, which is uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Um, and it's also really fascinating. I mean, it's a classic, so maybe that's a given, but just reading through um, what it means as Christians to live in a state of contentedness, um, especially as we live in a world um, where the already not yet is our reality, uh, what it looks like to be content as we wait and long for Christ, what it looks like to be content with um, the various stations and situations um, that we find ourselves in, in this life, um, how to be content in the midst of just, uh, you know, all of life, really something that I think we as Christians could um, benefit from. So that's, that's what I've been reading, but um, yeah. So if you want to start closing us out, Lucas. Sure. Yeah. So 
once again, Jared, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And um, I hope we're able to do something like this again in the future. Cause um, it's just, it's just a, a lot of fun. And, and uh, we're really grateful that you're able to make the time um, to, to spend a couple hours chatting with us. So, so thanks. Yeah, this was great guys. Thanks so much. Um, and thank you listeners for listening to today's episode of the doxology podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, uh, as always, we're on Twitter and Instagram at doxology podcast. You can shoot us an email at doxology podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions, ideas for future episodes. Um, let us know, uh, you know, what stood out to you in John 11. Um, and, uh, maybe if you identify more with Caiaphas or Martha, <laughs> um, until next time we will see you then. Peace.